0: This is Terry Crosby, Andy Steiger, Steve Kim. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you understand and speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. Welcome back, listeners. We're here for another week. We're going to talk some more with Andy about his newest... Part two. Part two. Of of uh, my talk that I gave at Cambridge and World Congress. So last week, we talked about AI and a number of issues dealing with that. And we went through a couple of his points. And we're going to go through the second half uh, with uh, some of his points. But I thought I'd just start off, because we're talking about AI... I want to give you some inspirational quotes
1: from an AI
0: bot. <laughs> Uh-oh.
1: Uh oh. See if these are any better than the AI <laughs> jokes that we did uh, a few podcasts back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you
0: can actually follow this uh, Inspirobot on Instagram, which I do to get my, all my inspirational quotes. <laughs> 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 if you want to post them on Facebook, right? If you go online, you can actually go to uh, this page, and there is a you know an eye looking right at you. And then there's a button underneath. Let me take a look at this. That says generate. Okay? So I'm going to generate an inspirational quote pretty for pretty ominous us today. looking. Yeah. It looks like Hal off of uh, yeah, Odyssey 2001. Okay, generating. There's no music that happens when you generate it, though.
1: You can beatbox first, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Intensify the hearts. <laughs> Intensify the hearts. I've been saying this for years. Yeah. Okay. I should explain. It says, "I'm Inspyrobot. I'm an artificial intelligence dedicated to generating unlimited amounts of intelligent
1: unique- is debatable. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amount unlimited amounts of unique inspirational quotes for endless enrichment of pointless human
1: existence. Artificial semi-intelligent. Yeah. Art-
0: <laughs> <laughs> Second one beatbox. There we go. There we go. Don't look at yesterday's family. Just be a man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure we have any hope for this AI walking into the future. Yeah,
1: there's not, not a
0: lot of hope. One more. Lie about incels. Lie about your dark side.
1: <laughs>
2: You can okay, tell
0: I think that's to, enough about you it. You can tell
1: oh, yeah. it's just going to grab some random stuff off the internet and well,
0: slap I it together. Well, I listened to uh, a podcast with the guys that produce this, and they say they generated a you know uh, algorithm, okay, to develop these. And they haven't changed anything. They, it produces thousands a day, it says. It's yeah. just spitting these out all the time. And they say they don't edit or anything like that. This is what actually Well, clearly they're at. not
2: editing. <laughs> <I know. laughs>
1: but some of them are pretty dark. It, it's just funny. Well, it's just a random mishmash. I mean, it's, you know, this is a good jumping off point. Uh, one of the things that I talked about in my paper is what, what actually is a machine this is an important question, you know, as we're looking at these different algorithms and as things on online can do, you know, pretty cool stuff. I mean, that's maybe less cool. Uh, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) interesting. (laughs) Sure. Interesting. Sure. You know, uh, and I'm sure that the algorithm that's doing that is, is quite complicated, uh, even though it's nonsense. Uh, but it it still raises this question of what is, you know, what, what is, a machine, and this this is a fundamental question to a lot of what's going on right now with regards to technology and, and a lot of the debates that's taking place. So let's even take this uh, algorithm that that you're playing with here, Terry, and we could ask the question: Well, well, what is this? Let, let's just call it a machine. This this algorithm, right? What what is it? Well, we would say that it is a program programmed by people, and this is an important for the purpose of creating quotes. Is that right from what you read, Terry? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, that's what it is. So what you get then is this aim that people are seeking to achieve with this algorithm. This is an interesting and important idea that falls within one of Polanyi's frameworks that I teased out at the conference. And one of the reasons why I want to do this, and this is an important philosophical argument that I was making is if we're going to have a culture that doesn't have technology that leads to dehumanization, then, and especially if you follow from our first podcast, and if you didn't listen to that one, I'd encourage you go back listen to that. If you don't want to have that happen, then you have to have a clear separation between what is a human being and what is a machine. And one of the very simple ways that Polanyi made this distinction between what is human and what is a machine is by simply arguing that a machine is that which humans create to achieve a specific purpose. Now, now this is interesting because in the conference, I had Q&A at the end and there were some people challenging me particularly at the world congress by asking me well what is a what's a human and my response back was i don't have to tell you what a human is i don't have to make that argument all i have to do is make the argument that a machine is not a human i don't have to tell you what the the human is all i got to tell you is what the machine is Mm -hmm. and that they're not the same and that's enough to win the argument that these two things need to remain separate and cannot one cannot reduce to the other even though i haven't argued for what the human is. And, and I strategically did that because I I wanted to remain at that point in the realm of philosophy and I didn't want to diverge into theology. Mm. Yeah. How was that received? It was received well, because philosophically, that's right. Mm. You know, the, the argument works without defining what the person is. You just need to define what the human is. Now, Polanyi does this through what he calls a tripartite system. And so he would say then that the way this works is you have working, you know, from right to left, if you will, or if you were to diagram this top bottom, you've got mind at the top and machines come below that. And then the things to which the machine is informally refers, you know, comes below that. So, you know, taking that algorithm, you've got the humans, the you know, the coders that are coding the algorithms or creating the machines, and then you have the purposes for which those machines are created to achieve. And so you've got this hierarchy. And that that's where things get really weird is when people want to break this hierarchy and and not see that it's the human at the top that's creating the machine to do something. Specific Now, this always gets interesting because we were talking about in the last session, when the goal becomes making the machine into a human, which is, you know, is a strange goal where we want to, you know, we got mind at the top, but we're somehow trying to take the machine at the bottom and bring it up to the top. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't work because you're the one that's creating the machine and that machine is distinct from you. And in particular, it's just in its purpose. You know, what? what is it designed to do? It's following what, you, what you've what uh, you designed. This is often referred to as an operational principle. Uh, and so it, that that's where we get really confused as a culture then is when we want to collapse and say that, well, the machine is a human. And that really only takes place through a confused and what we could say is a strong form of behaviorism. So
0: in in the paper, you talked about ontological dependency. Is that moving in that direction or is that already here?
1: Yeah, that's right. So we would say that the machine is ontologically dependent on a human being. Humans create machines, and these machines then achieve these purposes. So it raises this philosophical question, can one of the purposes of creating a machine be to be a human? To which what I've been arguing is is the answer is fundamentally no. You cannot do that. A machine is fundamentally different then a human being, and it falls within this tripartite or ontological dependency that creates a scenario that, that I was seeking to create, where we're saying, listen, you, you, you can't even have this sort of humanizing of a robot in that sense, ontologically, that, that this is taking place. What you get is a, a form of dehumanization, and, so and what as would, we talked about last what time. Would
0: uh, what, what would ontologically, what would be, be a definition of that?
1: Uh, so, ontolo- ontology is the, the philosophy of existence. So, when we're talking about ontology, we're, we're asking a fundamental question of what a thing is. And so, when we look at a human being, we're asking, well, what's a human being? When we look at a machine, we're asking, what is the machine? Now, I'm excluding persons from the conversation and just asking the question, well, what is a machine of which defining a machine is that which humans create to achieve a specific purpose. And so under that definition, a machine cannot, can never be a human being. Now, this gets into some important philosophical questions like I was getting to there with this strong form of behaviorism where we have this idea that if something can mimic another thing behaviorally, then it is that thing, particularly in the area of AI. That's how it works. If you got a machine and it can pass the Turing test or the imitation test, if it can behave humanly, then it raises the question, well, is it human? Now, this then raises deeper philosophical questions, such as what kind of a worldview are you operating from? Now, if you're operating from what's called a bottom-up worldview – And I don't want to get too philosophical here, so stick with me, though. A bottom-up worldview would be a physicalist worldview, a worldview that says at bottom of the universe there is the physical. And there are these physical parts, we could say, and they follow physical laws. And as you work upwards, you have then these parts that can form into things like composites that follow other laws such as so at the bottom you'd have the laws of pure physics and up higher you'd have the laws of applied physics such as engineered objects but within that worldview those those higher level level objects are still collapsible they're still reducible in theory to the fundamental particulars Mm -hmm. in the physics you know the the parts so in that worldview, then the behaviorism works fine because then that's that 's just simply what you are is is your behavior so you, you know wh- whatever it is from bottom up that you were designed to behave that's the way you behave, and if you can mimic that behavior, then you are that thing you know it 's interesting it 's not so complicated for those working in ai and i I find this really fascinating, as I have talked with computer uh, scientists and those that are actually doing the coding i 've yet to meet one actually. That would say, oh yeah, artificial intelligence is intelligent, and you know, and it's becoming human and things like that. They really shake their head at that. I've met a lot of people, especially at the conference, that just said, I don't even think we should call this intelligence. I mean, this is just coding, <laughs> yeah. and in fact, it's quite not intelligent. Uh, you can see that. Uh, by the way, there's lots of other tests that are done, like Winograd tests and whatnot. Where say, say you go in your browser, right, and you go, I think the correct spelling to the word knife is N I F E, right? Well, then your you know your browser's gonna underline knife and go, oh, you, you misspelled it. And you're like, no, you don't understand the context, or or I just say, you know, I want to spell the word knife this way. You know, and they still to line around and go, hey, by the way, you, you misspelled the word knife. You know, because the computer doesn't understand the context, it doesn't understand it's following certain rules, but now we've learned that AI can do something Quite interesting. It can it can do a form of learning where it can play out through these neural networks that are inspired by the brain. But it's interesting. I was reading this one uh, computer scientist from MIT named Alpladen, and he he writes. He says this. I think this is interesting. He says our immediate source of inspiration is the human brain with regards to machine learning, neural networks, whatnot. He says just as birds were the source of inspiration in our early attempts to fly. Nowadays, we see birds and airplanes and as two different ways way. of flying. We call them airplanes now, not artificial birds. And the idea there being, nobody's confusing an airplane for just a really cool bird, right? We would say, no, these two things are fundamentally different. Yes, they may have been inspired by one another, uh, but they're not the same thing. Yeah, and they behave in a similar similar way. For example, I went to Paris while we were there in Europe and there is something you can look this up. I think it's called a Tom bird or something like that. It was built back in the 1960s and I've never seen one of these until I went there. I guess they're from Paris. It's quite cool. It's this bird that flies. It flaps its wings. You you wind it up in its tail. You wind it up, you let it go and it flaps its wings and it flies all over the place. And so we bought one of these for my kid is like 10 euros. I was, you know, quite impressed, but nobody would go, oh, wow, look, you got a bird, you know, hey, you know, what souvenirs did you get? You know, oh, I, I got a bird. Well, no, you, would, you wouldn't say that that was a bird. You would say that it's this machine that mimics bird flight. So you could have then a machine that mimics what it is to be a human being and can do it really well. But at the end of the day, when, what I argue in the paper, at the end of the day, that's what you have. You have a human mimicking machine. And this is something that's kind of really taken over my thought process. When I talk about robots, when I talk about our AI and these different algorithms, that's the way that I refer to these things now. And the way that I keep that clarified in my mind is this is a human mimicking machine. That's what it is. And some of these are better than others. Thus far, all of them are pretty hideous, but that's ultimately what people are trying to create. Now, this gets into some philosophy here that I think is important to think about And that is, well, then is it, is it a human being? Of course, we've been making the argument. No, it's not. And humans are fundamentally different than machines. But there's another argument, another layer that you could throw in here. And I'm thinking of uh, Wittgenstein here, who uh, in his writing argues that if a lion could talk, we could not understand him. And I think he's, he's right there. What he's getting at is, You know, to be a lion is fundamentally different than to be a human being. Now, at some level, I can identify, Polanyi would use the word indwell, I could identify with that lion and I could try to imagine myself to greater or lesser degrees what it's like to be a lion, but I am not a lion. And so, although I could mimic a lot of lion behavior, I, I could never understand fully what it is to be a lion. Thomas Nagel makes this argument in his famous essay, Uh, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? In which, you know, he concludes, well, I don't know. I don't have access to what it's like flying around with sonar. And so I can imagine, but that's as good as I can do. You could ask a similar question. So you could ask, what is it like to be a machine? You know, what's it like to be a robot? Or you could ask a robot, what is it like to be a human being? Now, I just want you to think about that for a moment. You know, if you're asking a machine, what is it like to be a human? A machine is fundamentally different than a human being. For example, it doesn't have nerve endings, right? What happens then when I experience pain versus a robot experiencing pain? Well, on behaviorism, well, the robot's mimicking my behavior of what it's like to be in pain, right? So it's convincing me that it's a human being or attempting to. But we would all say that that is fundamentally different. Acting out the behavior of being in pain is fundamentally different than being in pain and knowing what it's like to be in pain, right? We have actors that will act like they've been in a car accident or any number of things. But we, again, we would say, hey, that is completely different. We would never say that those are the same thing. Oh, you can identify me in my, with my cancer and stuff because you played a cancer patient in a movie or whatever. I mean, people would say that's laughable, right? Because fundamentally, you, you know, you haven't had that experience. And so that that's one way that you could also look at a machine and go, well, the machine doesn't fundamentally understand what it means to be a human being. I mean, all it's doing is mimicking it. It's not experiencing it.
2: Even if they were to develop the kind of um, level of intelligence, well, assuming that they can actually develop intelligence, right? Uh, would mm-hmm. you say the same even if they could develop the kind of intelligence that's on par with a human beings or even better? Because what I'm thinking is, well, I'm seeing that this, the argument that you're making could be applied to aliens too, right? Let's say we encounter an alien species that seems to have the same kind of level of intelligence, consciousness, uh, self consciousness, and everything. Sometimes in the context of theology, the question is raised: Well, do they have the imago dei as well? Then, like, how do we make that distinction? I think from your angle you would say well we don't know they don't know what it's like to be human and we don't know what it's like to be an alien. Mm-hmm. But then the my question is then how do we deal with this situation here? Are they to us just like animals that we can kill at, at a moment's notice just because we want to or do they have some intrinsic value? that's perhaps different from human value, but they still have this intrinsic value that's sacrosanct and can't be violated. Like how would you navigate that?
1: Well it's interesting in Cambridge, I was asked that question. Uh, and my response was to uh, run away from it uh, <laughs> to def- kind of, to, to deflect that because I'll, I'll wrestle more with it here with you, but there I'm always weary of these thought experiments or these hypotheticals that are so outlandish The create these unique, you know, scenarios that I'm like, I, I don't know that these are helpful, if that makes sense. Because, I mean, we could create all sorts of bizarre thought experiments that aren't reality, that that we're not actually dealing with. And I, don't, I just don't know that they're helpful to try to, to deal with those. But here here's the way that I would deal with that, maybe in a way that's even more practical. And that would be because I think that we could ask very similar things of animals, for example, Now, as a Christian, I'm going to define a human being fundamentally different from an alien or from an animal in that uh, human beings being defined by their purpose, which is an ontology that I argue for, would be defined as uh, a relational animal that we have been created to be in relationship with God and we've been created to be in relationship with people and we've been created to be in relationship with nature. The Bible seems to to argue, first of all, the Bible doesn't talk about aliens. It does talk about angels, but we see that humans are fundamentally different than angels in that humans have been made in the image of God and have been created for a unique relationship with God. So, if if somehow we were to come across aliens, so the Bible doesn't talk about what sort of relationship they were created for, so, so I don't know. But I would argue that that doesn't mean, though, that I would not respect their life in the same way I wouldn't respect an animal's life. So, an animal has been created by God, and because an animal has been created by God, it has value in relationship to being one of God's creations. In a similar way that I do, as a human being, I have value in that I was created one of the illustrations that I've been using to make this uh, point for kids is to talk about this as a painting. I argue that a painting has three ways of being valued. One way that you value a painting, and I was inspired by this by watching a BBC program called uh, Fake or Fortune. It's a, uh, I think that's what it's called. Anyway, so they, they take these paintings and then they analyze them that people own to decide whether or not uh, it's a fake or whether or not it's worth lots of money. And and what are the criteria? Well, there's three. First one thing they want to know is who created it. Because uh, painting by a great master is worth a whole lot more than than somebody that's not. And so, right there we see, okay, well, as a human being, as creation, it has value in, in that it was created by a great master. It was created by God. The second thing that we see gives a painting value is, so you got who created it. So the second one is, what did they paint, you know, or create? So there are some things that are going to be of more value um, in the painting world. So you have some paintings such as where they've created a new technique. You see this, let's say, like the Mona Lisa or something, or, or you've got others where they've painted themselves into it. Uh, a, a great example of that is the School of Athens where Raphael paints himself into it and even more so paints uh, Michelangelo into it and paints him in there. In an awkward way Uh, Michelangelo's front and center And it looks like he had erased Raphael erased what he had originally done Then he puts Michelangelo in and puts him in there So that he doesn't fit geometrically and you get the sense that Raphael is communicating something through that. So, you, you have these ways in which a painting then can communicate. And so, with a person being created in the image of God, you see this value in that not only is it created by God, but this, that we have been created to be in God's likeness. And we see this special relationship that humanity has been created for. And the third way that you value a painting, I think this is profound, is you value a painting according to how much somebody's willing to pay for it, and what we see in the gospel is that God, you know, loves you. God created you. He's the master who created you, and not only creates you, but creates you in His image, and more than that, demonstrates the incredible value that you have by being willing to die for you. I think I talked about this in the last podcast, right? This this becomes a foundation for equality. You know, God couldn't have paid any more for you. Right You know you 've been created by the same author for the same purpose, and he demonstrated how much he was willing to pay for you, which would be equal amongst amongst everyone uh, and so this then starts to differentiate humans from animals. Uh, we would say then that uh, that a human being has a higher value than an animal, and I would make the same argument then with regards to an alien that that a human being has a higher value in that sense. But that doesn't mean that I would then have the right to destroy or to devalue God's creation. And and I think this is an important lesson that plays out in what Jesus talks about in the greatest commandment. If the greatest commandment is to love God and to love people, and he adds the second one, love people. I mean, the first one is just from the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then Jesus says, and the second one, you know, follows, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. Cause the reality is, is if you love God, then you will love what God loves, right? And you will respect what God has created. And, and so you, you kind of see everything plays out from your love of God. And so in that regard, then you love people and you care and love for his. So friendship.
0: you're really talking about relationships as a, a real basis here and a framework for between humans and between machines. So in your paper, you actually talk about the I thou relationship and the I it relationship. Mm-hmm. And you say humanity's responsibility, maybe this is Polanyi talking, p- humanity's responsibility to I thou relationships is a key aspect of.
1: Yeah, that's me talking there. That's you
0: talking. But it's going back to the whole human dignity piece with regards to relationships, right? Uh,
1: Absolutely. And that's a great segue, Terry, because what we see there is that we fundamentally understand, and and Steve, you'll want to speak into this. This is something that we've been talking a lot about, that we fundamentally see that there is a distinction between an I-it relationship and an I-thou relationship. So this is something that Polanyi gets from uh, a philosopher by the name of Buber that you can look more about. In, in his work. So, you know, just a simple illustration is I got a cup in my hand right now. That's an I-it relationship. And I understand that I have certain, uh, that that with regards to an I-it relationship, there are different things that I owe or don't owe an I-it relationship versus an I-thou relationship. So, when I'm holding a cup, if I were to throw this cup on the ground and, and, and destroy it, right? And my tea goes flying everywhere. Terry would be like, man, Andy, you know." He's having a bad day or, you know, he didn't, didn't like that cup or whatever. But, I mean, he wouldn't really think anything different of me. He'd be like, well, Andy's got a mess to clean up, you know. He wouldn't really care about the cup absolutely at all, right? It's an I-it relationship. However, if I was holding a baby in my hand, right, or even if I was holding a baby squirrel or something like that and I were to just throw it against the ground and destroy it, you know, you would be like, you know, that guy's a monster, mess- you know. Messed up. Yeah, he's messed up. And depending upon... This gets into something different here, but depending upon the degree of that animal 's sentience and intelligence and stuff, I think we would we would agree that there 's going to be a different reaction if there 's an ant on my finger and I flick it off uh, he 's not going to be nearly as disturbed by that as if I crushed a baby bird in my hand, for example. That raises a whole another level of, it, of questions that we won 't get into right now. but if you were to then extend that right and you keep working your way up to a human being, you see the human being. The atrocity there is is so great that we have laws in place, and you would be, you know, spending the rest of your life in prison for destroying that and abusing that I thou relationship. Where then we would say that one of the distinctions between an I it relationship and an I thou relationship is that I owe duty duties, duties to that I thou relationship that are not owed to an I-it relationship.
2: I mean, it makes sense to me, and that's one thing that I really appreciate about the zero-Christian the worldview, is that there is that hierarchy of values. If you look at atheistic naturalism, for example, everything is on equal footing. The, the total value of everything put together is zero, and there's no distinction whatsoever. Um, and that opens up a whole lot of questions about, okay, then what difference does it make if I crush a little bird as opposed to I flick an ant off of my finger, right? Because at the end of the day, everything is radically equal in the sense of they all have zero value. Or we could say they're all
1: biological and they're all working according to Uh, A DNA code.
2: Right, but if you go all the way to the other side, to pantheism, you also have a problem there, because again, there's no distinction, there's no hierarchy of values, so you end up having the same problem. Well, I I should say a similar problem. Now you you can't uh, do anything to anything. And so, yeah, and that hierarchy of values, I, I find, is really important in our decision-making ethically and all of that kind of stuff, it informs it. The question, of course, is, well, what differentiates, what makes that distinction of values, which is where you would say um, it depends on the author and what the author is willing to pay for it. You know, That would be one way of distinguishing the values. Would that make sense? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, you guys mentioned – I think both, well, no, you did, Andy. Just about, we we talked about it last week too as well, duties. You mentioned Mm -hmm. duties and you mentioned it again now. Define that and how is that, you know, integral in our human lives kind of thing, right? Like how how does that play out in this?
2: Often when I speak on the issue of meta-ethics and morality and those kinds of things, I sometimes bring up, you know, there are several components to it. One of those components in order for us to have any sort of morality is duty and so then the question is well what is duty um i think it was i forget the name of the the philosopher i think it was richard taylor i I could be wrong on that i'll have to look that up another time but anyway the way he uh, i found his definition helpful which is that a duty is something you owe duty is something you owe so then that raises the question well what can you owe to You can only owe things to another person or persons. So in other words, using Buber's language, duties are something that are only established within the context of I-thou relationships. So I don't owe anything to my phone, and this pen that I'm holding here doesn't owe anything to me. But again, if I borrow a book from Terry, I owe it to Terry. I have the duty to now give it back to him. So this is only established in I-thou relationships.
1: Now, this plays itself out right before our eyes right now. Uh, and I saw this at the conference where, you know, we there were leading thinkers, uh, again, from around the world. And there were a pair of researchers from an Italian university that's been working with MIT and others with, with creating algorithms that can help navigate self-driving cars and in particular can help navigate, pun intended, the moral duties in driving a car. Because, you know, one of the fundamental aspects of driving a car is that you can understand a distinction between an I-it and an I-thou relationship, such that if a decision had to be made in a collision And I have to decide to hit a tree or a family, you know, or a mom, you know, just to up the notch, up it a bit, you know, a mom, you know, with a stroller, put twins in there even, right? You know what I mean? We understand, okay, I get the fact that if I hit the family, it's going to be a lot softer, maybe less damage on my car, and I'll have a greater chance of surviving that. But we're going to hit the tree, so we're making these decision process. Do I, you know, do I hit a family? Do I hit a tree? You know, there, there's even just the aspect of the trauma after the event. I mean, the machine only has to deal with the mechanical trauma. You know, the human has to deal with the trauma of what has taken place, not just the physical, you know, if I broke an arm, but if I have taken somebody else's life in that car accident, I have to now deal with that. And so That's one of those aspects of what happens, right, when you break an I-thou relationship. This has been something that's been an interesting journey for me, is seeing how much of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is fundamentally related to the I-it, I-thou relationship. And, uh, I mean, I, I saw this one time when I was speaking at a conference on the Human Project. I had a guy from the Canadian military who had been a sniper, come to me after this conference and I mean the man was just in tears as he was talking with me about how he since getting out of the military and having you know needing to wrestle through everything that took place in the military you know he was dealing with the trauma of reconciling with you know the I thou relationships that that were broken I mean that's one of the challenges in the military and if you study the history on that especially World War One, World War II The military had to fundamentally learn to teach its, you know, its soldiers to dehumanize because people didn't want to point guns at each other and pull the trigger. We fundamentally understand that there is an I-thou relationship there that we don't want to break. And we understand that there's repercussions for breaking those relationships, not just legally, but emotionally. And so... You know It's interesting how we're seeing that played out right now with the self-driving cars and how do we teach you know, these algorithms what kind of decision matrix to make and how to value certain things over other things. Now, think about that. Is the machine learning that? No, the machine's being taught mm. what that morality is. And this is kind of scary because then we have to ask, well, whose morality are we going to teach our machines? Who gets to decide that decision matrix and what worldview is that going to be founded on that gives humanity that superior value so that if a car has to decide by hitting a dog or a child or take Harambe, you know, a gorilla or a four-year-old, it's going to choose the gorilla, even though, you know, that gorilla is endangered.
2: Yeah, I I think a lot of the times people think, that, you know, we all basically share this base morality, right? The, the, we all share this baseline. We can differ on the ethics of, you know, say drinking, you know, some people think it's evil, other people think it's fine, you know. But if you dig deeper down, there is something that we all basically agree on. Sometimes I see that, other times I'm not so sure, because, again like with the whole harambe issue right oh man the comments why did you shoot that gorilla cuz that's an endangered species we have way more humans we should be killing humans instead mm-hmm. you know some some of these kinds of dehumanization or you know devaluing of humanity that comes from some radical environmentalists right i guess guess what's going to happen if we teach these self-driving cars you know there morality let's see what happens there right and so again this it's not as simple as okay we have this baseline and we're we all value human life and so we're going to teach that to these self-driving cars as it is we have a group of people that really doesn't value human life and would rather elevate nature over humanity i think there's a an important point
1: and really this leads into my fourth point in the in the paper which was Uh, Dignity, whose approach best supports it, uh, Polanyi or Turing. And and really what we've been talking about here is pitting two different worldviews against each other. One is a bottom-up worldview that we've been talking about. But Polanyi argued for a top-down worldview that was fundamentally based on human persons as knowers versus the known. And I wish we had time to get into that. We don't, sadly but what we see there then is this this uh, ontology that is fundamentally committed to human beings remaining human beings and not reducing them into the physics and the parts of the world and i think steve you're you're absolutely right i mean we what we're experiencing right now is a culture that has forgotten the horrors of what human beings are capable of and so we start to slide into this you know kind of relativism on a lot of these issues which didn't exist after World War II. I think this is interesting. When after World War II, and you you've got the Tokyo and Nuremberg trials that take place, and then out of that comes the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They they weren't arguing about what those Universal Declaration of Human Rights should be, right? You you get right at the beginning as we've talked about: all humans have been created with inherent dignity, equality, and inalienable rights nobody was questioning that because they'd already seen what happens when humans take that away and and you and we saw what human beings were capable of and the horrors of it all. So we you know people were in agreement no this this that's right. we can't be doing that. It means that we have this sort of dignity and equality and rights. you know but it's been 70 years. And I think, you know, in many ways we've forgotten. And it's interesting, though, in that document, yes, they all agreed on what's true of humanity. The problem is they didn't all agree on why it was true. And this is something that came out in the World Congress that this really has been this pest, if you will, that has been slowly eroding away at the foundation where, you know, on the outside, everything's looking good, but on the inside, it's just turning into mush, and it's the, the, the building, I'm thinking of like ants here or something, right? Like gnawing on wood, right? The thing's ready to collapse. And and Steve, I think that that's what, you know, those are the fractures that you start to see developing as people start to question whether or not a human being, you know, is of more value than than a gorilla or not, a silverback gorilla or not. Do you you, you see what I'm saying? Where we've you know, we've started, we, we've begun to forget what we're capable of. We're, we've begun to forget these sorts of atrocities. And I think that when that happens, you know, we'll start to fall into these sorts of ways of thinking that I can't help but think, by the way, that this is why some movies and some TV shows can actually be quite helpful I think of like I've talked about this before on the show, like the TV show Walking Dead. I, I watched that for a couple of seasons and I thought, wow, I mean, they have a, they have such a great way of highlighting how horrible human beings can be. And the problem is, you know, especially in the West, we've had relative safety for for a while now. And you start to be lulled back into forgetting how terrible human beings can be to wrap all of this up. As we look at which approach best argues for human dignity, in the paper, the conclusion I came to that was controversial was that that I argued that the only worldview that's going to be able to accommodate this is a top-down worldview. But that top-down worldview cannot be fundamentally – it can't stop – at human beings, that if human beings are the top of that hierarchy, that top-down hierarchy, uh, then, then we run into trouble because we, we're not able to account for ourselves, we're not able to account for things like morality, things like inherent dignity that we've talked about uh, in the previous show that we came into the world with value. It's starting to ask, well, why, why are those sorts of things the case? And what you see then is if you're going to have the sort of morality and equality and inalienable rights that we all want to agree to at some level, even though it's being eroded, they, you know they at least want to agree to that with regards to themselves or their group of people. In order to have that, particularly the kind that we're talking about, you will need a level of personhood that is beyond persons. And this is critical particularly when we talk about duty right duty or not duty's not owed to things or it relationships it's owed to thou i thou relationships which is substantiated then with regards to a personal god Now, one of the things I found really interesting, guys, and I'm seeing this more and more, our listeners might find this fascinating, in my conversations with atheists, and I got to tell you, at Cambridge World Congress, I had lots of conversations, the variety of worldviews, and had the opportunity to share my faith with a number of people is awesome. Uh, But one of the things that came out, like I talked with a law professor from Poland and a law professor from Brazil, uh, all over the place. And one of the things I found really interesting is they didn't want to embrace the idea of God per se, but they understood that there is a hierarchy, the ontological hierarchy that must exist beyond human beings if you're to have things like law and justice and dignity and rights and equality that is able to be a foundation for it. And so what I have been seeing more and more is people willing to embrace a worldview that says, yes, you're right. There is a personhood that is, this is the way that they talked and agreed to, that there is a personhood that is fundamental to the universe, that, that is overarching and guides it at all. But that personhood is not God. Did Polanyi, where did he come to in the end? Did he
0: subscribe what you were just talking about there or did he have to make the step to Christianity?
1: It's, it's interesting that you ask that, Terry, because at the end of my Cambridge talk, one of the people in the audience said, you know, she was upset that I had brought God into the conversation. You had such a great paper, you know, she said, you know, for point one, two and three. But then you went and you know, messed it all up by bringing God into the conversation And my, my critique there was, I said, I go, well, there's precedent to do so here. I mean, Polanyi does. And and the reality is is that Polanyi had that understanding that personhood must be fundamental. You know, at the very least, if you're going to talk about machines, it's fundamental to human beings. You don't have machines without human beings. And, and logically you just see that there's this logical ordering then, well then how do you understand what a human is then? Is it, you know, because you, you have only a couple options. You either have option one is determinism. Option two is randomness. And now if you just stop there, which are your two options under physicalism, neither of those can accommodate for a person. Yeah, a person is fundamentally free. We are neither determined, we're not robots, nor are we random, which, are, which randomness is just the other side of the coin of determinism. If everything was purely random, you can't have persons within that worldview. You know, it'd be like listening to your iPod on shuffle all the time. There's, there's no rhyme or reason in any of that. And what you get then is some atheists that will buy that and they'll just simply say, yeah, that's right. And all of the, everything that we're experiencing is just one big illusion. This isn't really happening. You don't really have freedom, Terry, you know, and everything in your life was actually determined or everything in your life was purely random.
2: Including the beliefs that they hold that this is random.
1: Right. That's the irony of it all added to the fact that they were determined to know that determinism was true and that they were determined to do everything in their life. And somehow they were determined to know all that, you know, and to, and to get it right. It's absolute nonsense. And so they're starting to, people are starting to realize that this is nonsense, I think. And so what they realizing is, is in this, you only have one other option that we know of besides determinism or randomness, and that's personhood. Right. And so then... You, you start. I'm starting to see people wanting to adopt personhood. You even see this with Chalmers and other philosophers that would argue, no, consciousness is fundamentally distinct from the physical, and it must be an aspect of existence. The problem is, is what, how are you going to found that? So, what is that personhood? Is, is it some sort of panpsychism or something like that? Is it just a force of nature that we didn't know about, or is this uh, personal god? So, Polanyi would would. There's a lot of debate that goes back and forth. I would argue that he believed in God at some level, and yes, he identified as a Christian, particularly he identified as a Protestant, but he would waver on that. So I think as we just bring this all to a close, as I left Cambridge, as I left the World Congress, you know, with the privilege of sharing on human dignity from the Christian worldview, I gotta tell you guys, man, I just left there with my head held high. Went in there, you know, Sharing on this and fielding a whole bunch of q and A from literally the world's top thinkers in these areas, and the Christian worldview is strong. it is a solid foundation and listen, I left there just thinking to myself and saying to myself, "I am so thankful that I built my life on this foundation. You know a bunch of people have been asking me about this paper uh, listen, if you would like to get a hold of this paper, I'm not going to make it available on the show notes because it is going to be made into a book, and I got legal reasons why i can't do that Uh, however if there's any listeners out there that would really like to read this paper you wouldn't be allowed to to publish it obviously or anything like that but if you'd like to read it you know email us and we would make it available to you awesome thank you so
0: much andy for sharing your thoughts and you've been working on this for a while and it's part of your dissertation man it's it's sounding amazing amazing Thank you for joining us, listeners, the AC Podcast and the Ministry of Apologetics Canada. And we'll come back next week with more things to think about.